0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This is the 12th Sunday after Pentecost, which means that we're about halfway through the long green season from the Feast of Pentecost until the last Sunday of November, Christ the King, the Sunday right before Advent. So we're in the middle of the longest season of the year, this long green season. Which means we're also in the middle of our walk through Luke's Gospel. And I'll remind you of my admonition at the beginning of this season to sit down and read Luke's Gospel to yourself all in one sitting. Two at the most. The Gospels are not long. You can read them in at least two sittings. And what this will do is it will help you to understand the course and the scope and the tenor of the Gospel and to be able to see how all these little bits of Scripture that we read on Sundays... Fit together into this seamless whole. And what we read this morning in Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, is Jesus, as you remember, on the way to Jerusalem, and at the Sabbath day, a Pharisee invites him into the house, and he teaches about humility. This is the the core of Jesus' teaching about the virtue of humility. For those of us that have been raised in the church, for those of us that have been Christians for a long time, humility may be uh, something that comes to us and and that we understand. Maybe we don't practice it uh, the way that we should, but at least we understand that it's one of the great virtues. But for those who have not heard that, they may uh, think of pride as being a great virtue, pride and the love of self. Indeed, pride and the love of self are key virtues for the Greeks and the Romans, who were um, overrunning uh, Jerusalem and Israel at the time of Jesus, and this would have been the primary teaching of virtue. Many of the virtues that the Greeks and Romans held are familiar to us, ones that we recognize and promote, like courage and honor, these kinds of things, wisdom. But uh, humility is not found in the list of the Greek and Roman virtues. Indeed, by Aristotle, it's listed as a vice, and in place of it is pride. Pride and the love of self is taught over and over again in the Greek comedies and tragedies and in uh, Roman literature and their lists of virtues. And this is the, the situation in which the Jews find themselves in the 2nd century in B.C., about 180 years before Jesus, when we uh, see this book uh, called Ecclesiasticus. Ecclesiasticus is the book of wisdom, and we don't want to confuse it with Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Remember, Ecclesiastes is the book of Solomon, one of the three books that we read by King Solomon. Ecclesiasticus is written by a man by the name of Jesus ben Sirach in about 185 BC, and it's part of what we call the Deuterocanon or the Apocrypha. Very important um, group of uh, holy scripture that take place both between the time of the prophets and the time of the coming of Jesus. And really, um, for us, fill in what's going on and prepare us for the coming of Christ. and Part of this preparation is the recognition of virtue. And Jesus Ben Sirach is again, he's, he's focused upon this virtue of pride and arrogance that's promoted by the Greeks. And instead he is showing how uh, the scriptures of Israel and the teaching of Israel support humility. Pride and arrogance are what comes from removing ourselves from God. And it's very important that we see that when we remove ourselves from God, Pride rises up and takes the place of God in the form of the love of self. Indeed, there's no way for people to remove themselves from God, to not consider Him, and then to operate as if God was in His place. Because He has created the world in such a way in which He cannot be separated from the truth of the world. We think about the cornerstone that we've talked about, how uh, the Lord is the cornerstone on which justice and righteousness are built remember that line that's laid and the plumb line that's formed and when we have the Lord in his rightful place when we recognize his place we're able to organize our lives according to justice and to righteousness but when we're put in place of God then we're measuring everybody by ourselves and we're forced into a kind of self love which is a kind of a self worship and self centeredness that's destructive And when we find ourselves in that self centeredness and that comparing everything to ourselves, we become angry and resentful and aggressive to those around us. And this is exactly what uh, Jesus ben Sirach talks about in Ecclesiasticus. And he says, um, arrogance is hateful, right? Pride is hateful, and that it destroys nations. He says, how can dust and ash act arrogantly? We're created. When we see ourselves as uh, created by God and we see ourselves in right order according to Him as the cornerstone, then we realize our place. We realize the humility and the lowliness with which we're supposed to consider ourselves. But when we measure everybody according to us, then we start to think, uh, look at this guy. Look, look at them. Where are they messing up? At least I'm not as dumb as they are. At least I'm not as lazy as they are. At least I'm not as foolish as they are. We immediately start to denigrate others and to cast them down, to cast aspersions and to become aggressive and irritated at them because we become the center of our universe. And it's the opposite of this that humility leads us to. We leave God in his rightful place as the cornerstone. We are measured according to him. And when we recognize that we are dust and ash, when we recognize Uh, the fact that everything that we have is given by God and that we depend upon Him for everything, the rightful result of that is humility. To recognize our place and our lowliness. And this lowliness is essential, this humility is essential for all the other virtues to fit in their place. Indeed, it's what Jesus points to when He is at the the table with the Pharisees. Now remember, Jesus is... uh, been invited to uh, this Pharisee's home on the Sabbath day, and uh, what your uh, lectionary left out, and I'm not really sure why. What they left out, if you'll look um, at your at your handout, we have Luke chapter 14. You'll see one uh, comma, seven through 14. That means they left out verses two through six. But two through six are really important. When Jesus is at the table of the Pharisee, the Pharisee also invited a man with a a fainting illness called dropsy, a very serious kind of illness. And he seems to have invited this man who's ill and Jesus on the Sabbath day for just that purpose, because they've been watching Jesus and trying to trap him. And one of the main things they were concerned about was him healing on the Sabbath day, right? They wanted um, complete and utter rest, and they were not at all overjoyed by these miracles of healing that were taking place on the Sabbath. And Jesus is showing us, he's teaching us that the Sabbath is for God; it's for the worship of God and for the doing of God's will. And what Jesus does is he doesn't he doesn't exclude the Sabbath; he doesn't remove it. He kind of turns it inside out, like a sock. Right side out to show, no, the Sabbath is for us to be doing the work of God, to be considering the ways of God, to be addressing His holiness, and to be acting like Him. And so, of course, Jesus heals this man of dropsy. And then after He heals him, He teaches these two short parables about table manners. Table manners are very important, right? It's very important the way that we go to a table with others. It's essential for society that we have good manners and good order. And Jesus uses table manners to talk about this virtue of humility. Now, is he just talking about table manners? Is he just concerned with how we sit at the dining room table? No, clearly not. Is he not talking about table manners? No, he is. So when we talk about Scripture, we look at the, we look at the, the simple on-the-face reading, right? The simple, straightforward reading, And then we allow for anecdote or we allow for um, allegory, right, or metaphor to be built upon that story. So is this a story about table manners? Yes. Is it about table manners in the kingdom of God and Jesus is the king who's inviting us to the wedding feast? Yes, he is. Is he talking about how we relate to one another and the importance of humility? Yes, he is. So he's building layer upon layer here with this story. And he tells us that if we sit at table with humility, at the very least, we're going to save ourselves embarrassment. So he says, at the very least, treat those around you with humility and choose the lowest spot, because at the very least, you won't be embarrassed when the Lord says, you're not the person here who is of the highest rank. And what we see as we look at these scriptures more and more, we see that we're able to not only save ourselves from embarrassment, but we're able to rejoice for those who are seated at a table, who get a gift from God. And this is where we see the connection with the healing. See, if we think we're the most important person at the table, and we think that it's really about us, and that love of self is the end-all, be-all, and we're thinking about how great I am, then this guy can wait till Monday to get healed. Right? Right? But if we consider ourselves lowly and we consider this man with dropsy, with illness above us, or we treat him with honor and dignity and respect, then we're yearning for his healing. Then we're glad when he's healed on the Sabbath. We're able to see how the Lord sees him as his loved child. We're able to see the joy and the love that the Lord shows to Him in healing. We're able to see how uh, those of us that have animals or livestock that Jesus says we would be saving out of a well or out of a dangerous place uh, and and, and the promise of of having that animal return to us. We'd be able to have the humility to be able to look at the world and say, Oh, I'm glad of this healing. I'm glad of this saving. Right? And we're able to to have all of a sudden a right picture of, of the world and our relationship to God and the people around us. And then Jesus adds to this and he says, what if you're the... So in the first parable, we're the guests. In the second parable, we're the the host. And he says, how are you supposed to be a host? You're supposed to be a host with charity, which means love, right? Loving generosity. And so we see ourselves as hosts In loving generosity, we're supposed to be inviting people to be generous to them. Our focus is supposed to be on giving and generosity and inviting those who have no way to repay us. See, inviting somebody to table that can repay us, it's a quid pro quo. I'll give you dinner and then you give me dinner. No virtue has been given, there's no love, there's no charity. But when I give with no expectation of being returned, then I have kept humility, I've kept self-sacrificial love, and my hope is able to be firmly upon the resurrection. See, our hope can get caught up on the way. We start to hope in a paycheck, in a degree, in a savings account, in a military and politicians. We put our hope in all kinds of places. There's all kinds of pitfalls for our hope to fall into on its way to the resurrection that we are promised with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And if our hope is centered squarely upon the resurrection, then all that we have is in service of God. All that we have is in service of Him and we're able to give it freely. And it's in this understanding of humble, self-sacrificial giving and love that we begin with the letter to the Hebrews. We can't begin with the letter to the Hebrews until we've understood that because this letter is to the believing Christians. It's to the believing church. And he's showing us how it is that we're supposed to live out this life and gospel relationship, and the first thing he tells us here in chapter thirteen is uh, in the end, this very end of Hebrews, to live in brotherly love. When we live in brotherly love, then that that self giving, that self giving includes humility, it includes mercy, it includes God being seen as the cornerstone on which we're building our life, because now we're sharing the love with one another that we have received with our cornerstone, our foundation, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we recognize our hope is in Him and all that we have is in Him, then the idea of, 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 of kissing people we're not married to, of, of being a lover of money, of trying to grab more things for ourselves is just ridiculous. It's not a temptation even to fight. It's abhorrence. It's ridiculous. I'm going to go and I'm going to try to grab other people or grab more money or things when everything I have has been given to me by God and my thankfulness and my contentment is in Him? It seems ridiculous at that point to go and to look to other people or to other places for our love and for our support. All of what we have is found in the contentment of God who has provided all things for us. The problem with living like that is it's hard to find a good example of it. Unless you know where to look. If you know where to look, we see lots of examples. We know Father George and Judy giving their life continually, right, in hospitality and love and fellowship. Bishop John David, and his hospitality, and of his love and his joy. Of our grandparents and our Sunday school teachers, and those who proclaim the faith to us. Saint Monica, one of my favorites, a saint of North Africa. She couldn't read. She couldn't write. She never went to school. She prayed continually for the salvation of her son. She followed him to Europe. She followed him on his travels. She prayed for him and weeping continuously, and the fruit of her tears was the raising up of her saint Augustine, her son, who became a pillar of the Western Church. Macrina, who I was looking for that we've got to add soon, is another one of these ladies who couldn't read or write, but the faith was so real to her and the Lord was so powerful dwelling in her that when her famous brothers came back from university, from Athens, she set them straight on the philosophy that they'd gone astray from. And she spent her time in in emptying her home of comfort and inviting in the poor and the needy. And in a time in Roman society when infants, when babies, were left on the side of the road in exposure, she and her sisters would go out and bring them into their home and raise them as their own. True humility. True love. True sacrifice. True examples for us. True examples of what happens when we place our hope in the resurrection of the just. And our love is for God and for one another as our neighbor.